What inspired you to become a teacher? Um, gosh, that's a great question. It just felt like the natural thing to do. I guess the, the, the crux of it all was I wanted to share with people the profound effect that improv had on me. Um, and there was nobody teaching, you know, improv in the way that, you know, there, 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 there was no, there, yes, there was improv teachers in Dublin, but there was nobody teaching it in the way that I had learned. And I, you know, having come from a theater background, we weren't sharing the joy of what improv gives us beyond the stage. And I guess it was just that I was treating it like a disease and I wanted to infect everyone. And being the one who was like, I want to teach it, but I want to teach it in a format that's not being taught currently. Did you then have to create, like, from the ground up, everything in terms of getting the classes started, getting the curriculum, finding the students? Um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I was running a theatre company, and so I was teaching you know, drama classes for the want of a more professionally profound-sounding way of teaching theatre. Um, but I was, as you know, I was working my ass off, as I always do with improv, and learning from others. Um, but there was a gentleman by the name of John Kramer, who I always credited with, with you know, uh, having the biggest influence me improv-wise, because he set the ball in motion. And he, he's what a group called the Maydays. And just the way he, the way he teaches was, is like no other human being that I've encountered. Still to this day, and I still say that, John has a way of almost reading people's minds. Um, but it was just the way he was able to get through the people. I'd never experienced that in a teacher in any discipline. Um, and John with the Maydays, I'd heard then through uh, uh, Steve Rowe of Hoopla, who runs Hoopla in London. Steve told me his story of John and the Maydays when he, he took classes from them. And the Maydays were primarily based in Brighton, with some of them based in London. But their message to Steve was, go do this in London, you know. And St Steve was saying, like, why would they want me competing with them in a city that's just a train right away? And that was essentially John's message to me, was do this in Dublin. And John and the Maydays were incredibly supportive of that journey for me. Um, and so that, that was kind of the springboard. And from there, studying what other teachers teach, how they teach. I was always interested in how it connects with the learner. Um, and, you know, parking improv for a moment, you know, any teacher, you know, that's, you, you can be incredibly talented at what you do, but it doesn't automatically make you a great teacher. And in fact, I'm sure we all know of, te of, of very, of amazing performers who, when they teach, don't necessarily give us what we, what we need as, as learners. Um, and I was very interested in that. And then, um, I was reading every improv book I get my hands on because, you know, improv is not, or Ireland was not the U.S. I can't decide to go out on a Tuesday, or I couldn't at the time decide to go out on a Tuesday night and catch King Ten or catch uh, Beer Shark Mice or whatever. Um, so I was watching as much footage as I could online. I, 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 run, I worked out with the troupe I was with at the time. I, I, I analyzed the Harold because I'd never seen a Harold live. And I tried to work out how would I teach a Harold because I because I started to teach my own trip. We were doing short form at the time. I started to teach them long form, and I wanted to teach them this thing called Harold. So I had never had formal Harold training at the time. So I guess I was studying what a teacher, studying uh, you know what what how does a teacher translate this, uh, you know, uh, transfer this knowledge to a student. So you know that was kind of happening unbeknownst to me. You know. The, that sounds very fancy the way I'm saying it, but essentially this is what was really happening in the background. Then, then I'd read a book by Deborah Francis White and Tom Selinsky uh, in London uh, called The Improv Handbook, and they had a sample curriculum at the back of it. 
So I actually used that as a skeletal framework. Now, I didn't stick to that rigidly, but I used it as a, as a skeletal framework. And from there, I started to develop the lesson plans from each of the, guess, the modules over the duration of a level one program. Uh, and as you know, teaching is an evolutionary process. You grow as a teacher the more you teach, and you grow as an improviser the more you teach. And the curriculum go, grew, from, grew from there. So, you know, I started to chop and change modules, and then I might do some emotion work with uh, Zen Prom in Chicago, and they might do some with Will Luera of Improv Austin at the time, and I go, ooh, I like this. Why don't I start pulling in these hybrid pieces? So um, that's essentially how, how things evolved. And I guess the eureka moment for me was when a, a, a lady was taking my class who's a psychologist, psychology lecturer, and she commented to me during and after the course, and she said, nearly an incredible gift at getting under the skin of people, uh, and, and said I was one of the best teachers she'd worked with in any discipline. And that kind of, you know, being the, the imposter, the, having imposter syndrome, I was like, right, who, who, who do you know? Who, what's my mother told you to say? Um, so that kind of, I was a bit taken back by that. And from there, that inspired me to say, okay, I got to get my shit together with being a teacher. And that kind of started to make me look at, well, how do I professionally qualify as a teacher? Um, parking the improv bit again. And that's when I started to look into being, uh, look into taking, undertaking the master's in training and education. So that's kind of the long-winded answer to to it. So I didn't come from, you know, being in a country, an island in the middle of the Atlantic or the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, you know, I didn't go the traditional route that, say, people have the luxury of the U.S. of working up through a theater, getting on a house team and going from there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how it, how it all came about. So we're going to pick apart a lot of that because I think uh, a lot of how you did things will help out a lot of people. Because although you say the luxury of being in the U.S. and going through that, not everybody has that luxury in the U.S. of going through that, right? Like, I think there's a lot of people who would love to go spend some time in L.A. or Chicago and just they can't. So they're kind of just figuring out how to make art in their hometown, right? Which is great. I mean, that's we want as long as the gift of improv is getting out there, let's do that. What well so my first question is what uh, to you makes a great teacher? To me, what's very important with teaching, uh, and I stand by this comment. I've always felt this is when you're teaching, and particularly improv. Uh, let's say you sign up to uh, to do a Harold Harold class. Um, what's very important as a teacher is you're not. You, yes, you have your curriculum, you have your lesson plan, but your goal shouldn't be to just deliver that lesson plan. Your goal should be how can I connect this content with each of my learners. Because every learner has a different style. We all learn in different ways and every teacher has a different style. And as a teacher, you have to be adaptable to each of your learners' learning style. And improv, where we're pushing people to the periphery of their comfort zone, no matter how competent they are as a performer, it's very important that we're keeping those improvisers uh, at that, 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 I guess, prime learning location uh, and keeping them on side throughout it. And that's very, very important uh, to me as a teacher. And I think that's what makes a difference uh, in the, in, I suppose, the, the good teachers that I've worked with. What are some techniques you use to connect with different learners? Gosh, there's a question, Lauren. I'm a firm believer in, uh, in, in recognizing and embracing our vulnerabilities as part of the learning process. And again, I use that in any discipline. Uh, and using, you know, a number of different techniques. So uh, peer feedback is quite important, you know, both teacher and peer feedback. Uh, discussion and reflection on, um, you know, on what we're doing and what we have done, I, I also encourage and use. 
Uh, and obviously the practical bit is, is the nature of the exercises. So, you know, looking at, say, the learning cycle, you know, you're, you're kind of jumping into the four quadrants of the learning cycle without boring people with the theory behind it. But you're, you're, you're getting into the four quadrants of that. So you're kind of, you know, if you ignore everything else, you're kind of starting to tick boxes of how we, each of us all, you know, the different ways we like to learn. But reflection and, and peer feedback and teacher feedback is crucial as part of that. And then the difference between a good and bad teacher is the good teacher takes it a step further and recognizes that the feedback may not be positive or the learner may be going, well, this is a lot of shit. I don't really get this. I don't really like this. So it's just, you know, knowing how to handle that then. Um, so, yeah, that would be the te- part of the techniques I'd use. Let's look at peer feedback for a second. When you say peer feedback, are you having the learners give feedback to one another or the peer feedback back to you, the teacher? A little bit of both, uh, but peer feedback is the big one in the class from students, between students. Um, being, a, being a trained coach, uh, one of the things that you learn being a coach is how to ask questions. So in, by wording questions certain ways, when I'm asking groups for feedback, it can you know, help uh, sail the ship in a certain direction so that they're focusing on the positive things. When we're learning improv and we're learning any discipline, focusing on the positive aspects of what students are doing and building them up from there is key to it. Um, and the amount of students, Lauren, like it's, I had one student come up to me after his first class in level one. He was a young guy in his early 20s. And he said to me, did you lie to me in any of the feedback you gave me today? And I was like, what? So that's ridiculous. And he goes, I've never had somebody just give me so such positive feedback before on anything I do. And I, I that was very sad to, to hear that, you know. Yeah, as someone who has a background in uh, applied behavior analysis, all positive behavior supports and positive behavior if all of that has shown that the learner will take off versus all the negative stuff so yeah hearing things like that ugh, you just and then you just feel bad because they're young and you're like well, now we gotta I mean the good thing is they're young I guess right so we can start unpacking that and and doing that but education has taken its toll at that point a lot of it comes from how we're educated in school good and bad is equal to right and wrong um, and we're, we're, we're unlearn, we unlearn that in the improv class. Um, so, yeah, I, that positive reinforcement, you know, the same way we train dogs. <laughs> no, but joking aside, the positive reinforcement, I'm just out as a vet, so it's on my mind. Uh, that positive reinforcement is crucial in the early stage. And then as a teacher, knowing that as their experience grows, starting to veer a little bit away from everything is awesome to, well, actually, your behavior there is getting a bit repetitive. Let's work on those, those things. Because I think a crucial part of building confidence is – we as facilitators will see, God, Lauren is really good at status work. But Lauren, on the inside, Lauren might be going, I suck at improv. And one of the things I do to demonstrate in, in improv classes regularly to remind people, you know, as I remember early days of learning improv, coming out of a class going, I suck at improv. And at the end of it, it was just the teacher sucked because it's just everyone feels the same. I ask a class, you know, hands up if you think you're the weakest link in today's class. And you met the people who put up their hand. And it's because improv is not like sport. You know, you go and you play football, um, which is soccer to you guys. You go and you play football, and you can you can measure how well you're doing by the amount of goals you score, the amount of successful assists, amount of penalties, whatever they may be. Um, you know, athletes know how they how, how can measure how they're getting better, but as improvisers, we don't, because inside voice tells us we suck, we're ugly, we're not pretty, we're not cool, we're not funny. Um, so, you know, by focusing on the positive aspects that a student is doing, 
you you get them to the point where they're okay i know i'm good at status i should dip my toe into something else now and see what that's like so you're building up that that uh, you're building up their confidence level and their skills as a result of that and as they go on you know managing that is a delicate process um i always find and i will see if that's your experience also i can ask people like tell me three things you feel you struggle with or aren't good at and they can rattle it off and then i'm like tell me three things you're doing real well at and then they have to sit there I turned up today. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 true. And you know, I I recently was coaching one of my students outside of the classroom, one to one on you know on day job stuff, um, that has a link with improv. And it's just fascinating how, you know, for some people, no matter what they hear in the classroom, it can take them some time to accept the fact hey, you're doing really well there and you should acknowledge that for yourself. Give yourself the credit. You know, we need to learn how to give ourselves, we know we need to give ourselves permission to accept feedback sometimes. I'm the worst. Like when I was running a theatre group, there was only two people on the planet I would accept positive feedback from. One was my mother because she was a well-established actor and uh, very talented in that area. And the other was my uncle who ran it, who runs a theatre company. And uh, I, I blame for, for, you know, when I was growing up, I used to watch movies with him and, he had a very high standard in film, so that kind of split up. That kind of spread to me. So if they thought something was good, then I go, "Geez, that must be good." But anyone else would come up to me and say, "God, that play was good, or that performance was good." And I'm like, "They're talking shit. They don't know what they're talking about." Uh, yeah, their opinion. How do you know if it's good if you don't know how to? Re- yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I, I kind of grew up with that, and I'm not. By the way, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that's that's healthy. It's very unhealthy. Because uh, I, n- I never knew how to take a compliment from anyone, and uh, I would only result in tears if it got if it happened too much. But uh, so you know, but that's just me. But we, as human beings, a lot of us are like that. We're too hard on ourselves unnecessarily. Thank you, education, because that's where that comes from. Um, so that that's an important thing for us to be mindful of, both the students and teachers. Uh, it's so funny because um, I don't know if it's funny. It's interesting, uh, especially after doing this podcast and and just. Being a teacher, I, we're constantly talking about that, and, te- as, and I talk to teachers about the experience with their students, but almost every one of the teachers I also talk to is like, but I have imposter syndrome. We want our learners, we want our students to do all of this, uh, but I, you know, I'm not any good at this, though, so don't talk to me, right? Like, but, you know, it's understandable because I, there's plenty of Neils out there who are in countries and cities where it's not Chicago and, and New York or L.A., and that's okay. I mean, I acknowledge the things that I'm weak at as a teacher and as a performer, um, somebody wants to do a big physical theater piece where they're, you know, masters of, of comedy, the art day and all things like that. Great. Cause that's not me. Um, and I'll accept and acknowledge that. And I'll tell my students, if you want to learn that, go to Lauren or go to whoever. Um, and it's okay. It's okay to be like that, but just because we're teachers doesn't mean we're gods. And I think a, a lot of people get into teaching, forget that, you know, you, you can be, you know, you know if you're a jack of all trades, you're a master of none. Um, so focus on the areas that you're good at and share the wealth with your students that, hey, if you want to learn mask work or if you want to learn uh, this, go and work with Lauren or work with someone else you know, to, to, to do that. And that's OK to acknowledge that as a teacher. You can't be the best at everything. You know, the way to look, look at our gurus, look at or I don't like the word guru, but look at, you know, Adele Close and Keith Johnstone. I'm sure that there are things that they may would, would have admitted that they weren't so great at. But they had the pressure of being gurus, so then I probably probably will wait till. No, guruism is a terrible affliction on improv, but that's a different that's a different conversation. So, in the discussion reflection piece uh, for teaching, um, are you 
opening the floor to discussing, like, uh, tell me things you were enjoying during that exercise, telling me things that you perhaps struggled with that exercise. Are you doing that um, after the exercise is finished with, like, the two people up on stage, or are you opening that to the classroom to have that conversation through that so that they can debrief? I mean, I'll always have a feel for the group um, because what you don't want to have, you'll always get that moment of silence, but you don't want to also, you know, push the group too far so that you get this really positive feedback and then silence, which totally undoes all the positive feedback. So you have to be able to read your group, engage your group. That's very, very important. Um, but sometimes I'll break it down and I'll, I'll separate the content from the process. And I'll ask people, well, what did the students, what did the performers do uh, that worked for them? You know, or what did they do? What did you notice about the skills they use there that made that scene work? And that way you're parking the content for a moment. You're getting people thinking about uh, the process behind it. Because, you know, we, I take great pleasure in disconnecting comedy from improv. I know a lot of teachers do that, but um, and, and I, for, I sometimes forget them when I go to L.A. Or, or, or when I'm in the U.S. And there's such an emphasis on this comedy thing. Comedy is such a dirty word. And it's, improv is way, is, you know, has much more to offer than just comedy in, it, in itself. And that's a pressure as well on students, this feel and this need to be com- funny. I mean, I have friends who aren't improvisers who are incredibly funny. Sorry, let me rephrase that. I have friends who are improvisers who are incredibly funny. But as soon as you put format and structure in front of them, they're like, I'm out, I'm done here. You go off and do your silly little Harold. I'll stick to my montages. So, you know, the, being incredibly funny doesn't necessarily make you the best improviser in the world either. So relieving students of that burden is important. So talking about the process of what made a scene work as opposed to what made a scene funny, I think is important. Uh, so that students then can embrace drama. And that's where improv gets very interesting. My accent changed when I said that, so it must be important. I don't necessarily uh, have super newbies jump into that deep end either um, for a variety of reasons. If let's say a scene just, let's say the exercise just go like as it should, let's just say it fails miserably. Okay. Do you though break that down with just the two people or do you open that up for the other students to also be like, why do you think this went? Cause that can be really hard. I think for a person standing on stage who knows that that exercise that just went terribly wrong. Um, it's a strong. They're, they're very strong. There's very strong statements. A scene that failed miserably and things went very wrong. Um, because if you know, well, again, differentiating say a level one from a level three or a level four, there's different expectations from students in those scenarios. Uh, so arguably, in a level one, it's very difficult for things to go really, really wrong. But you know, looking at later levels, you know, more competent performers, obviously, the, the, the tide can shift. Um, if every scene you did in your classroom was awesome, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So in many ways, we don't want scenes to go very, very well all the time uh, because nobody will learn anything. And it's very important that, that failure happens in the, cla- in the classroom for people to say, well, okay, well, what, what could we have done differently or what, what didn't help us out in this situation? I think that's very important. Um, but I, no matter how bad, and I'm going to use air quotes on a podcast, no matter how bad the scene is going, and there will still be things that they were doing um, that were positive, that were working. And it might just have been as simple as they yes-handed. They yes-handed half of the scene. You know, and we'll, we'll build it up from there. And there's a thing called a feedback sandwich where, you know, we're all, some of us are used to it in our day jobs who aren't improvisers by day, 
where you, hey, I want to do your, your annual review with you. Hey, you're a really great member of the team. You suck at this, but keep up that great teamwork. So you're, you're kind of me- uh, sandwiching the negative, the negative feedback, air quotes again, uh, the more constructive feedback in between the positivity. Um, because, again, you don't want the uh, student or the learner leaving the, the, the class that day going, God, I suck at this. I'm a hindrance in the class. I should leave. Um, so, you know, again, handle, you have to be very delicate to handle it. One of the things I also do as well with students is sometimes I want to ask the performers in the scene for their feedback initially because I can see the cogs in their head going, I suck. Oh, my God. I can't believe all these people have to watch this. So I'll go to the audience first um, and get uh, get their feedback so that the learners then on the stage will kind of go, ooh, I, I, I thought they enjoyed that or they felt I was supporting there. You know, you know that, that, can, that can help. Uh, I guess bring more. What's the word I'm looking for? Help give more constructive feedback, and, and help the learner then accept the things that they have done right, and realize that just because something didn't work out or wasn't as best as good as it could be, and um, that there's learnings to be had with it. Something that I feel very very strongly about in improv is good and bad. There, you know, you I teach a workshop called you, "You're Doing It Wrong." Um, where I, essentially what I'm t- telling people is there's no such thing as failing in improv, no matter what, how a scene is going. Yes, there are scenes that entertain us and don't entertain us so much, but again, entertainment is subjective. Um, but there are choices we can make in, in a scene that will make our jobs easier or harder. But there are, cho- there are no wrong choices that we make. Um, and that workshop came out of kind of doing the plus one where I'm performing with an audience member. Um, but also because... I was getting tired of the improv cliches, not connecting with what other teachers were, were teaching. And, you know, there's no wrong way to do improv, everyone, but you must yes and. Or, you know, you must support your partner. You, you've got to have your partners back. So I was like, well, how, if there's no wrong way you're doing it, yes and kind of doesn't really matter, should it? So, you know, um, th- that, that's an important thing to me is that students understand that really there is no rules in improv. We should remove any, any of that nonsense. Uh, from our vocabulary, like there is no wrong way to do it. There are just choices that we can make that make our lives easier or harder. Entertainment is subjective. That's not our. That's that's not our problem. Well, it is our problem, but it's not. I mean, it depends. Well, if you're just in a classroom environment, it's not your problem, right? And if the classroom is not geared toward a performance or it's not geared toward some sort of end goal of like getting in front of a paying audience, then it's not your yeah. problem, right? Yeah. yeah. So with all of that, how do you set up your classroom to be that safe, supportive environment that people can feel they can fail or explore or expand or push their comfort zone in? Um, I guess it, it comes in the early days of, of the, in a first class of a, of a, pro, of a course. We'll take it level one because people don't know each other. Um, there are things that I do. I don't know if they're ethical or not, but I, I enjoy that 10 minutes before a class starts when people are sitting around nervous as hell and you watch the biscuit consumption and the tea making during that period of time. And not many people will make tea and they definitely won't eat the biscuits because they don't know if it's okay because the biscuits aren't open. And a, a, a closed sealed packet of biscuits on a table, no one wants to be the person who opens them in case they're not allowed to. So it's interesting watching that dynamic and watching how people converse. And you can learn a lot by just observing people's behavior there. Uh, but then in creating a safe place, one of the things that I do is, is it was a, it's something I picked up from Katie Shute, actually, in the UK. 
uh, where she was starting a class and she said to the students, we were making a circle, we were just doing the name game or something, and she mentioned, uh, I don't like this teacher-student divide, so don't don't keep distance between me. Don't keep distance between you and me because I'm no different than you guys. And I thought that was really great because that kind of, in many ways, humanized what we, you know, the class if for the want of a better expression. So I, I took Taking a Leaf out of Kay, Katie's book. I, I Well, I sometimes joke and tell the students that their herpes is cleared up, that they can sit beside me if they want to. And then as I'm talking about improv, I will often use examples of scenes or exercises or, or moments that I've had where it didn't work for me. Because a lot of the time when we go in and, you know, guruism, you go in and teach, learn a class from one of the improv greats, they're never going to tell you, rarely going to tell you, but they're oh, I did this show with Neil and it was awful. Oh my God, I wanted to quit. They very rarely will do that. Uh, but by doing that with students, particularly when they're new to it, it just, it takes the danger out of the improv classroom because ultimately the danger in the improv classroom is the teacher because it's the teacher who's giving the instruction and giving the exercises. They're the threat. Um, so by you know showing the humanity of, of, of myself as a teacher, that can help uh, give permission to uh, others to, to them to, to fail, I guess. Uh, and also when somebody does make air quotes again a mistake in an exercise early on when we're doing like a zip zap zap type game, and we'll talk about that and you know talk about how that person has given the rest of us permission to um, to uh, to make a mistake. And sometimes it's good to have, uh, you know, people in Ireland and the UK, we're very apologetic. We're like the Canadians. We're very apologetic for what we do. And so having like a sorry jar. So every time someone says sorry or beats themselves up and they put a, a euro or two euro in the jar, we'll all go drinking on it at the end of the course. You know, just highlighting that, that you know, it's okay to uh, to make mistakes and this isn't normal. Also, a very basic thing I'll do in, in a 101 class, when I ask people to define what improv is, or what they think improv is. Bearing in mind, most of the people who come to me for classes are people who don't want to be performers. Well, that's what they think. They don't want to be performers. They just want to learn the skills. So they're coming from their day job or whatever, um, and they just want to learn the improv skills and use it in work, and then I'll brainwash them into performing on stage. But I ask them, well, what is improv to you? And I might give examples of, you know, you improvise all the time. When you're ordering a sandwich, you don't know what you want. When you go on a date... And, and, you know, we're talking about day-to-day -day stuff, and you, you, we're not using the word comedy. Um, but um, I, won't, I won't let them, I, I'll get them, well, how do you feel when you improvise? And someone will eventually be like, oh, terrified and panicked, fear, you know, and I'll focus on that so that, you know, because once one person says fear and panic, that'll make everyone else who's feeling that go, oh, glad I'm not the only one. So, again, encouraging people to discuss and acknowledge that helps create that space of, well, actually, I can't do this. You know, it helps get people toward that mindset of, well, you know, really, I can't do this wrong. I'm going to learn as I do it. Uh, plus, it's fun when we're messing up. It really is. You know, when we're doing a name game or a warm-up, when have we ever enjoyed that when everyone's nailing it? Never. If for me, when I'm running these exercises, I look forward to that first person messing things up so that we can then be like, oh, look at that. Or like I always, you know, when you're passing the clap, ultimately, at some point, two people catch it. Right. And then they and then they apologize to each other. And I'm like, whoa. Right. I'm like, when did I ever say two people couldn't catch it and pass it back? Right. And then they're like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, and just highlighting that. There's um when I'm in, in a one oh in a basic improv and I do a lot of corporate training as well with improv. Um, uh, and I'm one, if, if I'm doing a workshop where we're doing a, a, an exercise where you're getting people to just 
you know, word association, I guess. One of the ways I do it is I get them to walk around the room and point at things and call them something different or call it the previous thing to find out. I do that in layers. And what's interesting, without fail, every single time I've used that exercise, um, I'll just give them the premise, either point at the floor and then point at something else, call it the previous thing, and then I'll get them to do it where they can just call it whatever they want. Eventually, some people realize that they could just stand still and list off words. Occasionally, that happens when it's great when it does. But I, I'll ask, I, I won't give them any other guidance. And at the end, I'll ask people, you know, did you find yourself being uh, in, influenced by other people's words? Like, so Lauren says cat, and I end up saying dog. And people will put up their hand and I'll say, well, did you feel guilty when you did that? And people would up their hand. And what the brain is doing is that brain is going, oh, you're doing this well. You must be cheating. You must be doing it wrong. And it's the same when people encounter lists for the first time, when somebody goes hand, foot, head, knee, shoulder. And I'll ask that question, did you get into lists? And people will say yes. And then you put up your hand if you felt you were cheating. Lots of people put up their hand. And again, the brain says, you're doing you're doing well here. You must be doing it wrong. So, you know, people are inventing their own rules that uh, we haven't given them, you know, which and just making people aware of that behavior, that our brain is almost a separate entity to us that w- is working to catch us out, is working against us at times. And I guess, as, as Dave Rosowski would say, it's our, it's our ego. It's our ego that's doing that. So, um, so. Again, making students aware, making learners aware of that is very important at all levels. Does does your class have a typical setup? Like I call it just like the improv setup of people shuffle in and then we sort of debrief, then we warm up, then we go into exercises, then we go to scenes and then we close. Like, is that? Yeah, that's that's pretty Like, I mean, in Ireland, we have a big tea culture, so we'll have tea. Um, I've gotten in the habit of bringing biscuits every uh, every class. So it's the staple of what biscuits we get. And that encourages other people to big biscuits. So, yeah, we have tea and biscuits, and we'll have a bit of, uh, uh, you know, a discussion of what we've learned over the past week uh, or since the last class, you know, how people are applying it in their day-to-day and in their personal life or if they've been using it in a troop, depending on the level that they're at. And then we'll chat about what we, you know, what we're going to do that day. Go into the icebreakers and the warm-ups, um, which some people hate. A lot of people hate warm-up exercises. I'm kind of one of those people, God, when I go to Improv Utopia and uh, uh, we do the warm-ups in the morning and there's like a hundred people in the field in the California sunshine. I was like, oh God. <laughs> I'm deaf. Like I also am one of those people. I mean, I make myself go to those ones at Improv Utopia. I, I force myself to go to them. But yeah, I definitely am uh, going through a phase of I just hate this warming up. But I know my, especially the early students, they really need it. Yeah. They so it's part of part of what I have to do. <laughs> you know, I, I think for me I kind of I used to be so strict and religious with warming up. Uh, in my first group, you know, I, I got into improv through short form originally. Um in my first group we, we used to meet uh, I think at first ninety minutes before our show. Uh to get warmed up, go through our set list. We would write out the set list. We had a template that we used we'd fill it in the we'd write between the lines and as time excuse me as time went on you know we'd meet in an hour earlier half an hour earlier i'm running late i'll be there in five minutes which i obviously don't recommend that that's rude it's uh, inappropriate for your teammates and um, so warm-up was a big big thing for me and then when i started doing neil plus one 
Um, and I remember I was doing it in Barcelona for the first time at their festival, and their festival is huge. And they had a protocol. So if you're, whatever act is on stage, if you're on next, at a certain point, they get you down to the green room. And then at a certain point during the show, they bring you up to the stairs and then to the side of the stage. And there, there wasn't just one green room. There was like rehearsal rooms. There was like six or seven rooms. And I'm on my own. There's no one else in these rehearsal rooms. And there's a group on the stage. And I'm sitting in this big open space going, I'm the loneliest improviser on planet Earth right now. You know, I kind of was like, oh, there's, there's nothing I can really. I used to do a little bit of a meditation that I picked up from um, Marshall Stern and, and Nancy Helen Walker. Um, I used to, I did, I did a little bit of, a little bit of that, which can help keep you grounded, because a lot of what I do in Dublin with improv, uh, certainly in the past, I would be the organizer and the performer, and two different mindsets, and that's not healthy uh, before you go out on stage. So having that little bit of meditation was helping, but there was no one to warm up with, like it's zip zaps up on your own. That's great fun. So now uh, I'm also one of those. I know we're kind of getting off tangent here, but I also acknowledge that I don't necessarily like warming up. I like to kind of just chit chat with my performers. Hey, what's going on? Or start doing some bits or just start, you know, riffing a little and then, okay, good, let's go do that. And it's interesting uh, talking about the multiple hats, right? So on the nights my students have shows, a lot of times, just because we're so small, they'll open for my my team. So I'm both uh, both stage managing, also teacher mode, and performer mode, right? And I hate warm-ups, but I've got students there, and they're all nerves, and I see they need that warming up. And I'm, it's it can be really difficult when you're the multiple hat thing. It is. And like with my current group, I don't want to be the bad guy not warming up. You know, it's the Miles Straw thing of, oh, great, you guys want to warm up. I'll be outside having a cigarette. You know, uh, and, it, it, you know, if there's something fun we're doing, but I don't necessarily want to play Zip Zap Boeing um, for 10 minutes before a show. Like, I think bonding as a group is very important. Um, and the same goes for class, because like, inevitably, I, I imagine first people's uh, improv troupe is going to be the, their classmates. Um, and bonding as a group, and I say to troops that I coach, um, go to karaoke. That's as good as doing a rehearsal session because you're bonding, you're hanging out. Um, so I'd rather shoot the breeze, catch up with friends for a few minutes, do a bit of a vocal warm-up, have a cup of tea, and head out on stage then. Um, but, you know, getting back to the classroom situation, uh, warm-ups are exercises. There's a learning in every warm-up that we do, even if it is big booty. Um so, you know, it, it's an important staple in the classroom. And I try to tie my warm-ups to the lesson plan of the day. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. So if we're really working on uh, listening and patterning, my warm-ups will be geared toward listening and patterning so that everything is stepping into the next thing. Do you, because you're sort of just running your own classes and whatnot, do you use student evaluations? But yeah, student evaluation, um, it's interesting. At the end of level one, I don't do a showcase at the end of level one, but I do a, a kind of a clinic session where, um, so I've been observing students over the duration of the program and uh, I'll construct exercises for them based on where I see their kind of comfort zone is kind of sh- shaky and also take their own feedback on how they feel they're doing. And that in many ways can, uh, can help as part of that evaluation. But it's very, you know, how do you evaluate improv? 
you're evaluating not the content, in my opinion, you're evaluating the process. And this was this controversy with UCB. People were up in arms about the fact that they were validating, but they had to do that. And while I've never trained in UCB, I do know some people who perform and teach in UCB. Um, I, I think that was a fantastic thing. Maybe there was, a, I don't know about the process, the transparency around it. But, you know, you're validating, uh, you know, theater, we validate theater. We have director or we have uh, degrees and master's programs in theater. So why, why is it alien to us as improvisers? So, but it's, it's how you evaluate that that's key. And to me, you're evaluating the, the process uh, as opposed to the content because content is subjective. And do you um, have them talk to you about your process through that or do you have them fill out a form for you also to, to monitor your own progress as a teacher oh yeah student evaluation is key uh, uh student or sorry student feedback on on the teacher is key it's tr it's a tricky thing i find feedback forms are not necessarily the best thing it's a bit like a test screening of a movie you know at the end of the course you give them the form you know if they're still there at the end of the course they've been enjoying it they're just going to give you feedback oh it's great it's great and people just like multiple choice they don't like filling in boxes but I send follow up emails um, and people will always reply to those emails you know follow up emails telling what else is out there but it also gives an opportunity to kind of say hey did I suck without asking them did I suck and people will often give feedback in that way um, but also I had some, uh, some improvisers who were getting into teaching shadow me. I've had a, pretty much a whole troupe shadow me, uh, separately during a number of the programs. And that was a great way to get feedback as a facilitator. Um, you know, if you're in a, if you're teaching in a school in a, or, or a theater, you can have your peers sit in. I, I, some people are a bit, you know, weary of that. I, I highly encourage it, even though it's incredibly nerve wracking. Um, or can be incredibly nerve-wracking. But that it's a very important part of developing and learning as a teacher. Funnily enough, under, in, in the master's program, my very first module that I had to do uh, was on the practicality of one of your trainings. And I had uh, someone who has no theater or improv background but is you know, a, a doctor in education. She sat in on, on, for part of, the, of a, a weekend intensive and she sat in um, when we were doing, I think we were getting into doing uh, an infomercial. So I was getting, which was the first kind of group presentation, group performance in front of the group. And her feedback was very funny from an academic trying to give feedback. Uh, and she was looking to give feedback on, you know, yeah, maybe you could kind of put people together. Guess. You could see she was contradicting herself. She was coming to terms with improv. But it was very useful to kind of get, a, I guess, a temperature check on, you know, what I'm doing as a facilitator. Because, again, just to emphasize, you may be the best improviser in the world, which I'm not, by the way. But that doesn't necessarily make you the best teacher. And we have to learn how to be teachers. One of the things that's happening in Europe um, in the education sphere is, uh, sorry, in Ireland, is this year they introduced um, a, a minimum qualification that you have to have to teach in higher education. Um, it, it, you know, there's a number of institutes that offer it. So if you're teaching in higher education in any background, you have to have this teaching qualification. And I, I think that's a really, really good thing. Now, obviously, you know, improv, um, I've taught improv as part of, um, as part of a program in a film school, um, I'm not familiar with the full curriculums of some of our theatre programs here in Ireland. I imagine improv plays a part of that, but probably not improv as we as we do it. Um, so you know, I, I I think it's I do think it's important that as improvisers, because it's not part of that formal process, there's no expect no improv teachers don't have to produce any 
evidence of that. But I think I, I, I would encourage improv teachers, no matter where they are around the world, is to get that, uh, you know, do learn how to do the learn to be a teacher, learn to be a trainer, um, because it will prove very valuable to you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of my or start of my thesis. Um, I'm doing it on improv in the workplace. Uh, and I have to say, everything that I have learned over the, 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 the length of the master's, just in every module, there has been something that I've walked away with. I said, wow, I should have been doing this years ago. Um, so, yeah, I do encourage teachers or people who are considering. Yeah, no, even just, a, sorry, just even an instructional design class, you know, which you can get online, um, you know, that will help especially if you're on your own and not being passed down a curriculum from an institution or theater or somebody else. Um, Cause that'll just help you uh, again. You can access those online. Like that'll just help so much with what you're doing. Hopefully. And hopefully you're teaching improv because you want other people to feel the love and joy and connection that you have, not because you want to feel important. Yeah. But it, it's good to do. Like recently I was doing a, a huge corporate program and I had to bring in, I had to bring in three other improv facilitators. Um, and, you know, teaching improv to, uh, the, 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 the general populace and teaching it in the corporate environment are two very, very different things. So it was very key for me to get the right people to fit that, but it was a great exercise for me because I had to draw up the lesson plan for them. And, you know, I have my, my little black book of, I tell people that if this, the little black book of improv that I have, I have all my improv notes since the start of time, if it falls into the wrong hands, damn you, uh, you know, that's, it's, the, it's like Indiana Jones, the last crusades, uh, the Holy Grail. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm going off topic again. Um, but yeah, I had to do up the lesson plan in a lot of detail because um, I wanted everyone to be comfortable with what we were teaching. Um, excellent performers and they've all they've all been teaching uh, but you know they were teaching my curriculum my lesson plan and it was my reputation on the line here so I had to put I put a very detailed lesson plan and it was a great exercise to do and because I realized as well god I've just become so used to you know there's curriculums that I'm teaching that I don't even look at my notes at half the time and it was a good good prompt to me to go you know what when you write this stuff down and you read over it it's pretty helpful and you also identify things that you could do differently have you ever had to ask someone to leave or or in the theater days either i have had to speak to somebody one time about unconscious behavior um i'm big on uh you know uh, vulnerabilities and uh intimacy and in improv and how we you know how we conduct ourselves consciously and unconsciously um, but that that was fine. There was no no issues with that. Person wasn't aware of their behavior. Um, but no, I've been fortunate. I haven't had to ask anyone to leave. Because you're in a different country, it's it's I it's all it's always it's always fascinating and fun and exciting for me to talk to people who teach in other countries. Because when I talk about like things that are racist and sexist and you know this and that, it it there's different. It means it can mean different things. You know, to the just the culture and stuff. So. So what the things that are like taboo, I guess, over where you are, when they come up on stage, how are you? Uh, how are you handle? Are you the type of teacher who stops right away? Do you let it play out? Do you, do you facilitate the conversation? Like, you know, it's it's it, this is something that's close to my heart. So we have a huge stand-up comedy scene in Ireland. It's massive. Like stand-up comedies are comedians are celebrities here, um, and you know, the vast majority of comedy festivals in Ireland are essentially stand-up festivals. I dislike, that's the word I'll use, most stand-up comedy because it bores me. Um, 
one of our, one of our most famous stand up Irish stand up comedians is a guy called Tommy Tiernan, uh, and Tommy is an incredibly witty and funny guy. Um, and I paid in to see him do a festival one time, and part of his set was uh, now I'm very hazy on it, so I, I give, give, give so apologies on getting this for anyone else who saw the gig. I'm getting it slightly wrong, but part of the story involved him uh, being attracted to uh, young women. I think it's 17, 18 year old women and talking about age and the effect. And it was funny, uh, but it was not what I paid 20 euro to see on stage. And when this comes up in improv, it inevitably comes up, somebody will say something risque. Uh, And usually when it's early on in in a level one, it's great because no one ever goes the full hog with saying something highly, rarely with something highly offensive. People don't want to do that early on or people are very careful about what they say. So when something slightly risque comes up, like we're still talking PG or uh, uh, PG content here, it's a great opportunity to talk about what's interesting, funny and entertaining to us. Personally, what I say, what I say to students is we could all get exceptional, we could get really drunk tonight after class and tell dirty jokes in the pub and not have paid for the privilege of doing that and then just regret it the next day. So why should we you know, as performers, uh, perform and do smut on stage or be dirty on stage and have people pay in for that. It's lowest common denominator stuff. And it does, it is that thing of playing to the top of your intelligence. Um, but in terms of, you know, generally speaking, generally speaking, and I'm, I'm sure others would disagree with me, anything goes in Ireland. You know, we have uh, an interesting culture and background. You know, blasphemy is still against them. It's still a crime here, but it's not enforceable. And that you know, it's twenty five thousand euro fine if you diss God on stage. So racism, you know, we have a good track record in that field. Not a perfect, um, but we have a good track record in that field. And obviously, um, you know, LGBT, the same sex marriage referendum was a was a huge uh, uh, milestone for this country. But abortion is still illegal here. It's a hot topic at the moment. So, you know, traditionally when we had the church oppression in Ireland, stand-up comedy was somewhat the voice of the people. And you're actually seeing this in India at the moment because stand-up comedy is becoming huge in India and it's kind of like Ireland was decades ago. So stand-up comedy was the voice. But then when you don't need that hat so much anymore because abortion is the big issue, uh, you know, the stand-up comics go back to talking about sex and airlines. Um, and then when it comes to improv, we don't need to go down that path. You know, we, you know, what I say to students when sometimes... You know, I, I had one lady sign up for one of my classes and she was an improviser and she said to me, I want you to teach me not to be smutty because I'm incredibly dirty. She was a, an American lady. Um, so I just started putting her, purposely putting her in her scenes that could lead to being incredibly dirty. Uh, you know, setting her scenes outside of a sex shop or outside of a, of a strip club. Because once you put that there front and center, she was more conscious of not going down that road. And the beauty thing of anything dirty, just using sex and smut as an example, uh, the, le- the less you say, the more the audience will join the dots in their head anyway. Um, you know, it's doing short form. Every single show you have when you're doing like genre roller coaster theater styles, whatever, you want, whatever everyone calls it, someone's going to that funny guy at the back who thinks he's the first person in the world to shout out gay porn as a, as a genre style. And, you know, you don't, you know, as a, a, prof- a professional performers and experienced performers, never say anything dirty in those scenes because the audience will fill in the blanks anyway. I, the way I view improv is generally speaking now, again, generally speaking, there is nothing that can, should happen in an improv show that isn't suitable for all ears. Because if you're doing it right, the content will make sense to the audience uh, at the level of their 
intelligence. And, you know, to give a, a parable with other forms of entertainment, take Disney or Pixar movies. They're very good at, you know, having humor in there that reaches the adults, but means something totally different to the to the kids. And they still have their PG or whatever ratings uh, that they carry. And uh, to me, most of the time, the same should apply to improv on stage. Um, and I think that's how comedy sports do it. When I'm talking to Jeff Kramer in Comedy Sports San Jose, um, uh, about it earlier this year. That I think is the, the approach comedy sports take is that it's a family friendly show. It's in all the family are welcome, but some of the humor will fly over the kids' heads, and that's okay. Um, and uh, you know that's how I, I kind of approach that in the classroom. And once you talk about things and get them out, less likely to happen. What do you do to continually build your own skill set as a teacher? Um, well, I, I travel a lot for improv, and uh, Lauren, we we have had, have had the pleasure of meeting at Improv Utopia. Um, so I still, you know, you, you never stop learning as a teacher or as an improviser. Uh, so I travel a lot. I'm at Improv Utopia every year. I go to the UK. I go to the US a lot. Um, I take classes with our teachers. I, you know, I, I counted them up. It's up on my website. I think I've worked with something like 40 to 45 improv teachers, uh, improv and theater teachers over the years. Because I was living in Ireland when I was learning improv, I couldn't go off and do the intensives. Well, I suppose I could have, but I didn't go off. I couldn't do it that way. So I had to learn from as many teachers as I could, um, uh, you know, and take intensive programs and uh, intensive weeks um, and, and learn that way. And um, that hasn't stopped. I find that I watch less improv because I used to watch every single bit of footage I could find online. Uh, I find I watch less of that because I'm at a point now where I don't feel I need to watch improv that doesn't entertain me as much, um, you know, because I've watched so much of it over years. And, you know, it, there is a point where you have seen that scene before. I, I, you know, I know every show is different, but I've seen shows where, I've, you know, you've seen, oh, I've seen someone else do that show, and that's not dissing anyone. It's just the nature of it. So, yeah, I, I do want to be entertained as well by, by improv. So, you know, uh, working with different teachers, stepping into classes or things that don't make you comfortable. When I first signed up to Musical Improv um, years ago with the Maydays, I did it because I didn't want to do it, and it made me highly uncomfortable. And now I do it, and I love it. Because um, it's way easier than having to do a talking head scene. Um, yes, if you commit, that audience will love it. That's the secret of musical improv. Um, that's all you need from musical. No, I'm joking. But yeah, it, it's 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 doing that. Um, and you know, Brian, Brian James O'Connell. It's the thing he always says is do something every day that scares you, uh, and that is a great motto to have. So you know, work with as many teachers as you can. You know, read the books. I, I was talking to a very. I won't mention the person's name. Um, we'll say he he uh, incredibly talented teacher and performer I, I look up to this person and we were talking about improv books one time and he turned to me and said Niels you know what I don't think I've ever read an improv book and he's co-ordered an improv book I'll put that out there um, and I, you know I, I, just to me though um, I just have to do that I've had to read everything that I can um, because it's just what I wanted to do to develop so you never stop as a teacher and you have to work with people. You have to perform with people who are better than you and aren't so good. Uh, aren't so good. I use air quotes for that uh, because you learn from help, uh, supporting uh, less experienced improvisers, and you learn from obviously performing with people who you feel are, are better performers than you. Um, so you know the journey never ends. I still feel like I'm in you know imp the improv journey of life I still feel I'm in a 101 class that's for sure I think we're seeing a culture in improv that has developed over the years because of the abundance of improv festivals 
uh, where we're, we're seeing teachers being put on pedestals and some teachers being put on pedestals, which is creating this kind of divide, I feel, in the teaching sphere of improv. And this wasn't something I always felt, that just over the years, this started to creep in and from talking to other improvisers, uh, that kind of light lit up in my head is, hang on, this is this is this could become a problem. I think that's something we need to be very careful of. Can we dive into that for a second? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, because I think I know what you mean, and I think I'm light bulbs are going off in my head because I'm like, oh, maybe that's what I've been feeling lately, but I'm not sure. So let me give you two, let me give you two examples. Well, two things. First of all, if you were to ask me, and don't ask me, <laughs> but if you were to ask me who my top five teachers, I don't write teachers like that. But if you say who my top five teachers are, I'm not necessarily going to say five names that everyone around the world has heard of. Um, one of those people will be John Kramer. Now, I don't know how well-known John is outside of his improv sphere, but he is one of the best teachers I've ever worked in in any discipline. Um, th- that's one thing. The other thing that I, I, I had this very interesting conversation with Josh Nichols uh, and um, uh, I think Joey Shope was with us at the time and uh, Mike McEverly from Spectacles Improv Engine. Um, we had taken a class, the three of us were in it, or we had to take a class at the same time, but we had taken the teacher, a certain teacher we had worked with, and we had watched this teacher perform as well. And we had this conversation around, I kind of raised, I said, did you feel that the teacher used the skills that they had taught from the classroom on the stage? But if, you, if you're going to teach something in the classroom, you need to walk that talk. You need to do that on stage. And if that disconnect is there for me, I, it's, I find it, to me, it, it erodes the credibility of a teacher. I don't know. That's probably a very harsh thing to say. I, and there's teacher, there's people who make the arguments that you're um, paying for the experience of the teacher, if you will. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. That's why no one should sign up to Dustin Hoffman's uh, online acting class. <laughs> um, no, but but here, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's a point. It's like, oh, well, aren't they so talented and experienced that they don't need to use it? That was an argument that was put forward one time. And like, well you know, that's not necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with that. And that, again, gets us into that guru water, that territory of gurus, and oh, they're so fantastic, they don't need to do that. And that's dangerous. And what, what, you see, and what this is all at risk of is that we're segregating the teaching sphere to people who've just done it for a very long time and we're on, you know, and oh, by the way, I'm not dissing anyone here, but I'm just I'm just talking about that culture of we have to be careful. Um, you know, Improv Utopia is a good, is, let me give that as an example, and it's close to both of our hearts. Improv Utopia is one of the best things on my improv calendar every year, and if I could do it every day, I would. And we always have that challenge at camp that we can, we have five teachers, generally five teachers. I know there's sometimes more now at East Camp, um, but we can only take four of them. We can only work with four of them. And there is that dilemma of who do I work with? And, you know, not everyone on the bill is going to be a household name improv teacher. So you have to read what they're going to be teaching and read about them to make that decision. Um, the cost is irrelevant because you're paying a fee to be at camp. Um, and, you know, that I find that an incredibly challenging thing to do most years because Nick Armstrong will only pick the best teachers uh, for camp or, you know, who have something to offer. It's an incredible, and I always feel so bad that I almost feel I have to apologize to the teacher that I don't take an improv scene now that doesn't need me to, you know, uh, that, you know, there was a point where in Dublin, I was the only person who was developing community and we reached the point where I no longer had to be that person. It was such a wonderful thing to, to see happen. Um, but when I was bringing, so I was, would bring improv teachers over from the US and when I was bringing Susan Messing and Rachel Mason over first, 
I was very conscious of the point. This is a point, and Susan and Rachel are wonderful, and this is a point that I made to them when I said, I need all your blurbs, and don't be offended if I ask for the things that you do outside of the improv world, so your TED Talks and your acting roles. Because in Ireland, nobody knew who they were, so essentially no one gives a shit if they don't know who you are. And 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 the guys are totally understanding of that, and I knew they'd go down a treat when they did come over for the first time. Susan's been over twice now. Um, and, you know, that that's an interesting... It's nice as well, in a way, because, you know, you have to sell the workshop as opposed to, you know, uh, sell someone on the back of their credentials. And on a funnier note, when Nick Armstrong was... I had Nick Omer over to teach an improv fest Ireland a few years ago. And um, the media were all over him because he had been on the telly box. And uh, one of the, there was one talk show wanted him on because they wanted to talk about Grey's Anatomy. He did one episode of Grey's Anatomy and they wanted to talk about him. And, you know, that was more, more interesting than the improv bit. Uh, to them, to them, I should say. So, you know, that's kind of nice as well that, you know, you, you people don't, you know, people will challenge why is, you know, this workshop so expensive yet when you had someone else over, it wasn't expensive. So you have to make sure that the workshop is bang for their book for people because they won't care. Um, you know, you take someone like Susan who is infectious, is uh, uh, not just a great teacher in my opinion, but she's also incredibly inspiring. Uh, you, I, I find when you walk out of a Susan class, you're like, oh my God, I just want to do this now for the rest of my life. Every minute of my life I want to perform. And uh, She's highly inspiring. But then Brian James O'Connell in the Pack Theatre gives me that same hit. Um, Brian is an incredibly inspiring uh, improviser. And that's just so lovely to 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 uh, you know to to have that from not just someone who is a household name, but Brian is slowly and surely becoming a household name. I hope in the improv scene, uh, and this same goes with John Kramer in the UK. Um, I'm sorry, I know I sound like I'm totally name dropping and single people, and I'm not. I, I, everyone who's who's listening will know teachers of that caliber that they feel that way about, and we we need to get. You know, we need to ensure that those people get the, you know, get the same reach with festivals. Where can people find you? I'm, I live in Dublin, Ireland, but I travel a lot. Um, uh, you'll find me on my website is loweredatone.com, uh, as in loweredatone.com. I'm on Twitter as ImprovNeil, uh, improvising all this time, and that was the best handle I could come up with. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well as Neil Curran. Um, I have a Facebook page for Neil Plus One where I tend to post courses and stuff and I also have a podcast nowhere near as professional as yours uh, Lauren but if people are interested again equally as non-creative with the name it's Neil Plus One the podcast <laughs> um, but if there is people what I the, the rule I have with that podcast is I, imp- I interview improvisers that I meet in my travels that I find interesting or inspiring uh, so again I'm not just looking for gurus I'm looking for people who inspire and, and the only rule I have with it is that I, it, it's a face-to-face interview um, so yeah, that's up on SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, so yeah, uh, I love talking improv. Uh, my non-improv friends hate me talking improv, so I would talk to them, talk about it till the cows come home. So, so reach out and say hello. Hold up. 